Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and you might find this hard to believe, but we found things to talk about between hour one and hour two. (laughs) There's lots more guy talk. Let me know what questions you have, 877-933-2484. If you just climbed in your car, we just had an arousing hour of guy talk. Really great questions and lots more coming in, so thank you for sending them over. Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, and Greg Borgond are my power panel, my guest today. And in the first hour, we talked about, a question came up about mentally ill getting, uh, is, there, is there a chance that they would get some sort of pass for a sinful lifestyle? And these guys answered it well. Follow-up was uh, 1 Corinthians 5.11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunk, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Mm-hmm. How do we process that? You know, there's a there's a phrase I think that's helpful in this situation. You can get so close to the vortex of somebody else's dysfunctionality that you're swept up in it and consumed by it, and you can't get out of it unless somebody helps you get out of it. And so the degree uh, to which you can come close to that vortex, God still expects us to deal with these issues, but it depends on your level of spiritual maturation, the level of spiritual energy that you have, emotional, physical energy at the time, to determine how close to the vortex of somebody else's dysfunctionality you can get. At mo- and more often than not, you're encouraged to swim in the other direction, to get away from it before you're caught up in it. And so it's a it's a judgment call. It's a decision we have to make. How close to the vortex of somebody else's dysfunctionality are we permitted to go or are we capable of going without being caught up in it? And the verse for that is, is in Galatians 6.1. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. But then it says, Keep watch on yourself, however, lest you too be tempted, lest you too get caught up into it, lest you too get swept into it. I, I like that expression, vortex of dysfunctionality. dysfunctionality. I'm just wondering if you find yourself in that position right now with somebody, that you are close to the, vor- the vortex of their dysfunctionality and you're getting swept into it. Yeah. Wow. One of the keys I found, and it's kept me healthy in ministry, is that when I run into somebody like this, and maybe they've left the church or they didn't feel welcome anymore because they were the lifestyle they were in, the danger I have is uh, going alone to try to talk to those people. I don't go alone anymore. I take somebody else along with me to hold me accountable, to hold them accountable, so that vortex doesn't drive you in. Because I have been around people that are caught up in this, and they can be the most sad people you've ever met and you want to help them so bad but before you know it you're getting caught up in things you should not even be talking about or getting into Mm -hmm. you need one another so i encourage that you want to be careful not to be an enabler of their sin by trying to identify with them and god expects us to be empathetic 
but not necessarily sympathetic in those cases. Good word. That's a powerful word, Greg, yeah, that vortex of dysfunctionality. I know yeah. several right now in that situation. Yeah. So scripture says when you have a brother that is sinning, we are to point these things out to him with gentleness and respect and out of love and so on. If he doesn't listen, scripture indicates that you should bring two and three. Tom, you just talked about that. And if he still doesn't listen, you're to bring him before the church. And if he still doesn't listen, if he still is unrepentant, then that, that is where I believe First Corinthians 5 kicks in where it says, okay, we'll put him out from your fellowship. Even earlier in the chapter, it says to hand him over to Satan. If he wants to live in this world, well, then don't have anything to do with him. Don't have fellowship with him. Be careful of that vortex and send the vortex on its way. And hopefully, you know, there's the old saying that once you reach bottom, there's nowhere to look up, uh, nowhere to look except for up. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that person living in the world and the sin of this world will hit rock bottom and return to God. And when, when it also says about giving them over to Satan, what it really means is if you insist on living your life this way, I have to release you to it until you come to an end to yourself. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to listen to reason? Are you ready to listen to God's voice in your life? And I can't help you until you come to that point. So that's what it really means in, 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 in this term, I think. Well, mm-hmm. it lines up with Luke 15. The prodigal went out on his own. <clears throat> the father let him go. You know, his brother let him go. And he came to his, his senses, senses yeah, right? because yeah. the world was not very kind to him. Yeah, and remember uh, that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's not your purview. It's not your responsibility. It's not your obligation. You're the purveyor of truth, and the conviction comes from the Spirit. Let the Spirit do his work, and you're not the one that's supposed to do it. We talked about this, Bill, real quick before the show, because the next verse, verse 12, says, What business is of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside the church? I think the church, many in the church, have a fear of judging others because they feel that, oh, God doesn't want me judging. No, God wants you discerning. He wants you judging, discerning those within the church. God will judge those outside the church. Expel the w- wicked person from you, from among you. Yeah, we had this conversation in the green room before we came in. And the idea of saying that, well, we're told not to judge. And the fact of the matter is, is that there's two kinds of judgment in scriptures. There's the judgment that God's sole responsibility. He can be judge, jury, and executioner. He can convict and he can condemn. That's not our job. The judgment that we're to give is just what you're talking about, which is discernment, which is evaluation, which is using wisdom to come to correct decisions about matters that we're confronted with. One of the things I see in the church that I worry about as a pastor is that too many pastors, too many leaders, too many Christians are letting the world define what grace is, (laughs) what love is, and we succumb to that when true love and true grace is loving somebody enough to hang in there with them, but tell them the truth. And that's a hard thing we don't want to do with people is tell them what you're doing is wrong. It's destructive. It's going to hurt you because that sounds judgmental in the world to say, oh, you can't do that. But the Word of God says you have to do that. I think too many of us uh, submit to a smorgasbord approach to doctrine and Scripture where we go along the line and pick what we want and leave the rest. Or like you're talking about, um, we become so passive and not proactive 
that we accumulate to ourselves ideologies and philosophies and cobble together this worldview, and all of a sudden we see everything through the lens of that worldview, and uh, the enemy tries to keep us away from Scripture, which is the truth that sets us free, and we end up going off on these rabbit trails or these ideologies or philosophies believing it's the truth. And when anybody questions us about it, we criticize them or we state more firmly what we say we believe without submitting in obedience to the Word of God. Here's a verse that I find so chilling as it relates to this topic, Second Timothy 2.26, where it says, Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses. Yeah, that's a powerful point. And escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Oh, that's a great that's a great. It's a scary verse. Yeah. I mean, Stephen King couldn't write anything that scary. <laughs> no. Not a chance. All right. Um, so let's see. Great questions coming in. The next one is, I have forgiven someone, but have a hard time forgetting, so I protect myself emotionally rather than allowing it to go to the next step. Please help. I hear that a lot. I mean, that I think is is very true, that people have a hard time separating the decisions they make of forgiveness from the emotions of how they feel about the individual. And I always tell people, all right, you made the decision, for Jesus' sake, to forgive that person. But you're telling me you still have the emotions, and, and if you had your way, you'd probably throw them over a cliff or something like mm-hmm. that. And my, my advice to them is this. Yeah, it's very difficult, but you have to go to Jesus and ask him, how— Lord, do you want me to get my emotions under control so they can approach this as you would rather than I would out of my humanity? And it's not an easy task. I mean, there I worked with people. It took them years to deal with their emotions before they could finally get beyond that. Doesn't mean they wanted to go to Valley Fair with that person and have a good time on the roller coaster, but it does mean that they no longer held the bitterness or the resentment or the evil thoughts, but they really want to see that person redeemed and in the kingdom of God. A Christian counselor friend of mine once gave me a wonderful definition of forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is choosing not to seek revenge. What do we mean by that? Revenge can be isolation. Revenge can be um, uh, taking whatever resources you have and using them against somebody. And so when we start from that position, choosing not to seek revenge, we may be like Peter who had to forgive, who was told he had to forgive 70 times 7. That thing may come up emotionally to you, over and over again until it finally dissipates over the gradual transformation of the soul, which is the soul purview of the Holy Spirit who's active in your life. So don't beat yourself up because that emotion keeps wallowing up. It's going to happen, especially if you've been wounded deeply, emotionally deeply. Then it's going to take a while before that scar is finally formed and you're able to move on. But each time it raises its ugly head in your life, You need to lay it on the throne of God and say, I'm choosing not to seek revenge. I release this to you, Lord. And then you may have to do that like Peter, 70 times Mm -hmm. 7, on that same issue. The the listener doesn't tell us if this is someone close to them or just an acquaintance or a friend or or how much interaction they're going to have going forward. And uh, Tom, like you said, you don't have to be best friends with someone that you've forgiven. That's, That's not a requirement for forgiveness. I think one of the best things that we can do, and, and this is true for many things actually, is Philippians 3 and 4 are kind of the, are, are two 
chapters that I love to think about when I think about how do we live by faith. And one of the verses, Paul says, he says, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Other places it says, so fix your eyes on Jesus, trust in him, abide in him, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. When we put off the worldly things and the the cares and the concerns and the, the worries, and we fix our eyes on Jesus, good things tend to happen. So as much of, as possible with this person, put it behind, put it behind, and then fix your eyes on Jesus. Mm. All right, we'll take a break. Coming back with lots more Guide Talk, let me know what question you have, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. I can hardly wait to get your question. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to Guy Talk, or guys who talk. Boy, the questions are flying in. We need more time. <laughs> I'm doing this up to three hours, Bill. I can't do that. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't have that power. You would think I do, but I don't. Um, let's see. All right. Jesus speaks in parables because of the spiritual dullness of the people. But why not speak clearly so they can understand? Looking at Matthew thirteen verses thirteen to fourteen. Well, I think Tom Parrish is a good example of this. Uh, think about the truth that we're talking about, and he has so many illustrations that drive the point home. And so when we talk about a, a, a biblical concept, sometimes it's hard to understand unless it's encased in a relatable story. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. And on some cases, he spoke in parables because they weren't ready to hear the truth. Right. And it would drive them to ask themselves more questions. Well, what does he really mean by that? What do you mean by this? Or what do you mean by that? So sometimes parables are used to compel you to ask questions, to raise your interest so you're ready to engage in conversation. But oftentimes, they're used to illustrate a spiritual truth. And so um, I'm preaching, the most effective preaching I know of is relatable stories that drive the point home. Not just a story to throw in a story, but a story that illustrates and underscores the biblical concept. Remember, the truth in the Word of God is profound and deep. And sometimes it's hard to understand, especially as a new Christian, and in particular when you're a non-Christian. So these stories or these parables are meant to do that. Jesus spoke them all the time. And, and because also the culture at that time, not many people could read or write. Um, uh, so they, the stories drove the point home. You know, this... The disciples actually asked Jesus this question, why do you speak to them in parables, they asked. And he said this, to you it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That is why I speak in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing 
they do not hear, nor do they understand. They didn't want to hear. They didn't want to see. They didn't want to understand. But if you wanted to, then suddenly these truths would become clear. And as you just said, their their parables are easier to remember. You can remember a story, and there's a spiritual yeah. truth that Jesus often was communicating. By the way, I think about 80% of the parables are about salvation, by the way. So he was communicating this message that God wants all to be saved, and you need to believe and be saved. And and one last word, he actually did also make it clear. I mean, he said, Peter, you're right, Peter. I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, right? You're right in that. The woman at the well said, well, there's the Messiah who's coming, and he says, the one you are speaking to am he, right? Yeah. So he, he did make it clear. I'm going to be teaching on the parables in a couple of months. Could you guys write down what you just said? That. <laughs> that was really good. It's Get really, the recording. It's really good. <laughs> Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, Dr. Greg Borgon are, are my my fully uncompensated power panel. Um, but I so appreciate them. Here's a question. I commonly hear the expression, God is in control. A casual observer of world events might question the truth of this statement. Is God holding back to allow for free will? Is there a better way to characterize God's authority in this world in light of 1 John 5.19? I love this question. I do too. Um, I talk about this a lot. Yeah, because 1 John says that the whole world is in control of the evil one, is what Scripture says. God has given a level of authority in this world to the enemy, and he gets to play around in this world kind of like a bully on a playground. I think within certain limitations that God has set, right? But he is in control right now. That's why earlier you talked about the temptation of Jesus. He offered the world's kingdoms to Jesus Mm -hmm. because in some way, shape, or form, they were his to offer. Now, the fact that Satan is in control right now takes nothing away from God's sovereignty because in the end, whose will will be done? Yeah. God's will will be done in the end. Early how, how, go ahead, Greg. Yeah, how can you do right if you don't see a juxtapose of what's wrong? And so, consequently, you have to see it against that kind of a, a, of a standard. I was forced early in my ministry to rethink using this term, God's in control, because I had an 18-month-old baby choked to death on a pee, and I did the funeral. And I remember the funeral home. People never know what to say in those circumstances. It's hard. How do you talk about it? But I hear too many of them say, well, remember, God's in control. And all I saw that do was embitter the parents. What I learned to say to people is, this is wrong. This is not the way God created things. However, remember, Jesus will have the final say. And that doesn't mean that your child is gone forever. There will be a day you'll be back with that child if you trust in Jesus. God doesn't do evil. No. We live in a fallen world. We have fallen people. We have a fallen angel running around in this world looking to kill and steal and destroy. Don't blame God for the bad things that happen in this world. But remember the great promise of God that despite the evil that's going on, he is working all things for good for those who love him. And and Bill, you alluded to this. God is patient, almost to distraction for many of us. Why won't you? I mean, you're not going to kill, you're not going to destroy the world by the flood anymore, but fire's still available. (laughs) (laughs) Why aren't you doing something? But he wants all to be saved. And so when he gave it this this amazing gift of free will, 
we can exercise it in very deleterious, terrible, dysfunctional, sinful ways. But God is patient. The day is a sign when he will see us again and he'll, he'll, the grace will be over and he'll judge. But the fact of the matter is, see it also, God is very patient and wants all to come to him. And we need to trust him for that. All right. Paul said to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Well, that's, that's a great question. Working out our salvation hasn't anything to do with works towards getting salvation. It has everything to do with partnering with the Holy Spirit in the journey of producing spiritual maturity. It says in Scripture, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, we're being changed into his likeness from one degree to another. That comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So consequently, we're to grow into maturity. We have some responsibility, some obligation for that. And you take a look at Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to say, note on godliness and worldly passions, and to live upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior, who gave himself for us to prepare for himself a people eager to do what is good. So not only do we have the benefits of salvation accrue to our account, we have obligations of representing the kingdom, that we're to say no on godliness and worldly passions, that we have some part to play, Bill, in this role of working out our salvation, working out the results of our salvation, seeing and showing the world by the testimony of our lives what salvation looks like. So salvation begins at conversion, but it continues on as we mature in Christ. Nobody's asking me to uh, write a translation of the Bible. But if I did, uh, on this particular verse about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, fear is a hard word in our culture, unless we really define it. Fear biblically means dead seriousness. Work out your salvation with dead seriousness about what the Lord has said and who he is. And with trembling, that means that we're not <clears throat> passive toward it. We're going to get serious. And I know when I used to play sports or I would go on stage I always had people call them butterflies or you get kind of worked up inside until you finally get out there. And that's the way it should be for us. We we get rid of that fear and trembling by being serious about it, but do, going and doing it immediately when the Lord calls on us. One thing, as a pastor, I go almost crazy with, do not take sermon notes home and put them on your refrigerator. Don't do that. Don't put them up there with a magnet. Sit down and read them again and then go do what it says. If it talks about forgiveness, go forgive somebody. If it talks about serving somebody, go serve somebody. Because I think we intellectualize it and then understand we're called to do this. Yeah. When I have people come to me and they talk to me about their values, and uh, oftentimes it's because they know that I have this commitment to values. Um, when they're done and I listen to them respectfully, I ask them, tell me about a decision you made or an action you took within the last three months that validates the value you say you hold. So in other words, what I'm asking them to do is to act on it, to do something with it, to actually put it into practice. And it says that we're given everything we need to live a life of godliness, but it still requires us to live. All right, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. 
Uh, Jeff, you had something you wanted to say. I think we got a little bit no, of extra time. No, we can well, No, 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 go ahead. No, really, really, really. No, no, You're I the boss. <laughs> no, I insist. I insist. <laughs> we wasted a lot of time back and I forth. Know, I know, but I mean, I was going to make it a little announcement, but I want you to talk instead. I, I think these guys, the doing part is earlier in the chapter says, do nothing out of selfish right. ambition. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, now you're out. We'll be back. See, now the real boss. <laughs> What could be more fun than two hours of guy talk? Not sure what that answer would be. Gentlemen? Two hours and 30 minutes. <laughs> nice. Uh, I like your attitude, but we're not doing it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So... Great questions coming in. Let me know what you have. 877-933-2484. Jeff, you had some uh, closing thoughts on our last topic? Yeah, we were talking about working out your salvation with yep. fear and trembling. And, and both the guys talked about doing this thing called faith. And in fact, earlier in the chapter, it talks about the doing part of walking in this faith. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Uh, do it in humility. Think of the others above yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests. These are the things that of how we work out our salvation by doing what God has called us to do. And I just wanted to point out that this word fear is is shows up in the English often in scripture and both in the Hebrew and in the and in the Greek actually there's this idea of reverence or awe and that is probably a better translation of this word fear instead of using the English fear because a Christian does not need to fear God. We can come before his throne of grace with confidence. He's our father, our Abba father, our daddy, and uh, we're united with him. A true born-again believer never needs to fear God, have the fear of judgment, if you will, but an awe of him. Mm -hmm. I think that's what fear and trembling is about. Thank you for that, Jeff Redorn. All right, I, I know we're supposed to pray in Jesus' name. I do this, but I wonder... If I just want to say a quick thank you to God when something good happens, do I need to say in Jesus' name for this? Well, the question is, who is God? We have no identification. And we have Yahweh in the Old Testament, but we don't have any understanding apart from what he did there. And we don't really—we encounter the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit brings us faith, but I haven't had a, a personal meeting with the Holy Spirit where we've talked. In Scripture, I have Jesus. And when you honor Jesus, you honor the Father and, and you honor the Holy Spirit. Now, do you have to use that? Probably not. But in your heart, you ought to be praying that way, that you're doing it because Jesus has invited you to, and the power comes through him. He is our intercessor. I hear often people pray, and during their prayer, they'll say, Heavenly Father, we pray for this. Jesus, we pray for this. Holy Spirit, we pray for this. And I'm I'm not going to say this is wrong, but I want to point out that all three are God. Yeah, all three yeah. are God. And and the way I think about it is, we pray to God who is in heaven by the authority of Christ, who is the door, our mediator to God, in the power of the Spirit who indwells in us. That's great. That's exactly it. All right. Thank you, uh, gentlemen, for those answers and those additions. Um, oh, so we never really answered the question. So I don't, you don't have to end 
in Jesus' name. By the way, no. uh, we probably should directly answer the question, by sure. the way, right? Yes. I but like you, that. But you need Jesus in your heart. Absolutely. Because the Father isn't going to listen unless you're honoring the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, that passage in Matthew 22 to 28, this is a controversial passage because it appears that Jesus is speaking to this woman in a in sort of a derogatory way, almost ignoring her. Matthew 15, 22 to 28. Oh, Matthew 15. 15. 15, okay. yeah. And is, is Jesus, is he ignoring her? This is the most silence I've heard yeah, well, here, in two hours. Here, the passage itself says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me. Uh, o Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by the demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begging him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that, that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. So I think that this is one of those kinds of dialogues that compels people are to question, not that Jesus would question, but to have them question, are you really serious about this? Are you really serious about this? Do you really want an answer? Sometimes people ask a question and they could care less about the answer. They just want to either trap the person with a question or they're just asking it to ask it and they could care less about the answer. But the fact that he did answer her is what's important. Yeah, and it's it's what we don't get in Scripture, unfortunately, is we don't get the smile on Jesus' face or the look in his eye when he's talking to this woman or the way he may be urging her on to continue the dialogue when the disciples only saw it one way, and yet Jesus is coming back. And notice that Jesus doesn't reject her, you know, but he's pointing out that even this Canaanite woman has value, and he granted her what she was asking for. Yeah, and who we don't know who was listening around him. It wasn't a single conversation with just her and him. We can't derive that from the Scripture. There may be others around it listening in, and he was responding to her really as a message to them. And Jesus came, as he says here, to the lost sheep of Israel. It says elsewhere in Scripture that he came to his own. He was a Jew. He came as a Jewish Messiah. He lived under the law and taught to those under the law. And so that's who he came to. First, Romans says, it's first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. So it wasn't the time yet for the Gentiles. And I think there's a component here with that. But here this woman comes in, and she's supposed to be at a distance because she is a Gentile, and yet he he ends up praising her and praising her faith because she had faith. And I think of the centurion woman, or I'm sorry, the centurion man who, who also was commended by Christ for having great faith because he said, you know, I'll come with you to heal your son or daughter. I can't remember what it was. I think daughter. And he says, oh, no, you don't need to go with me, Jesus. I am a commander over many men, and I submit to the command of others. Say the word, and and my, my daughter will be healed. And it's like, wow, Jesus says, I haven't even found such great faith in Israel. And this person understood, and he commends that Gentile as well. Wasn't Jesus also being 
kind of lovingly playful a little bit with this woman? Well, that, see, that, that's what Tom is referring Could to. Be. We don't see the facial gestures right. or how, what was the tone of his voice? What was the, the you know, the, how did he communicate? Yeah. And it wasn't so like a, a wild pack of dogs. It was more reference to a, a loving house pet. <laughs> well, the Gentiles were referred to in Israel. As I know dogs. they were. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I think in this case, he was playing with her he a little was, bit. Yeah. When yeah. I read this, I think of my niece Tanya. She died at age twelve of heart failure, and but she was so witty. She was so much fun. When she was six years old, my mom and dad are babysitting, and I remember this. It was the funniest thing I ever saw because she had them under control and led them exactly where she wanted them. She goes up to my dad and she goes, "Papa, I love you." Well, I love you too, Tanya. I want a nice cream cone. And he comes back, you want a nice cream cone? She goes, okay, and went out to the car. I think sometimes the Lord leads us to ask the questions. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. But like Tanya, she knew where she was going, and she knew how to get Papa to respond. And the Lord knows how to do that with us. And oftentimes I see him do this in my life. He leads me into situations I don't have a clue on. And yet he gives me an answer I wasn't expecting. You know, if we really knew... If you were walking first century Jerusalem and you really knew who this man was, the creator of the wind and the waves and the earth and the heavens and everything in them, I think our attitude would probably be much more like this woman who says, yes, but even the dogs look for scraps from the table. Exactly. You know, I think one of the things she models for us that we too often forget is she was insistent. Mm-hmm. And in our prayers oftentimes... We're kind of hesitant, and we need to be insistent on our prayers. And it's not that sooner or later the threshold is going to be reached and God is going to reciprocate and he's going to answer our prayer, but he honors insistence, yes. just like he did in this case. Mm-hmm. Good word. All right, gentlemen, it seems like we are turning this Christianity into a religion in that we have to do works. Why is that? Well, we have to. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we'll go there first. And we know that we're saved by faith. You know, it's a gift of God. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of us, of ourselves, right? So I think most evangelicals know and understand that we're saved by faith. But then we are to live by faith. And maybe this is where the confusion comes in, because I think oftentimes we believe we're saved by faith, but then we think, oh, but now we need to get busy for God. The next verse after Ephesians 2, 9 is 10, and God says we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we are supposed to do good works in this world. The question, uh, the issue I think in the in the listener's question is this, do we do these good works in our own power, but do we do them in his power? And I like to go right to the vine and the branches where it says we abide in him he is the one that bears the fruit. Well, when you even look at a passage like James, beginning um, in chapter 2, with verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his work. And as a matter of fact, the passage ends in verse 25 and 26, says, and in the same way, Uh, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them on their way? 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. But what he's talking about is not faith to salvation, it's faith because of your salvation. So in other words, there should be some evidence of the vitality and reality and the truth of your faith, and that's often done by how you act after becoming a member of the family of God and expressing that faith. In my first congregation, I had a multimillionaire, and he and his wife came, and he heard the gospel, and he grew in his faith. And then one day, I don't know where it came from, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm now giving 10% of everything I have to the Lord's work. Shouldn't the Lord be thankful that I'm giving 10%? And I looked at him, I said, Lord, could care less about you giving 10%. The issue is, how thankful are you? You give out of thankfulness. You don't give out of a percentage. The New Testament does not teach tithing. It teaches thankfulness. Yeah, Why do you forgive your enemies? Thankfulness. thankfulness. Yeah. Everything we do, once we know Jesus, everything in the Christian life now is out of thankfulness for what he's done for us. We're not trying to achieve anything or make ourselves better, you know, in that sense, or say, look at me. We're doing it because of what he's done for us. I almost want to be sarcastic and say, oh, <laughs> so you want God to thank you for the 10% you give. Shouldn't you be thanking him for the 90% you're left yeah. with? <laughs> yeah. I didn't think of that at the time. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right, here's a nice comment from Bruce. He said, thank you all for letting us join in your enlightening conversation I feel like you are all my friends. Oh, that's, that's kind. wonderful. Thank you. And Lessons you are on friend. you. Yes, you are. So thank you, Bruce, for that. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back. We've got one more segment of Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let me know if you have a burning question. Uh, some of these questions that have come in, I don't know how to address them because they would consume an, an entire hour. So I'm trying to figure out how to do this. Just so you know, I'm not ignoring your questions, but some of them are really big. And in fairness, uh, I don't know if I can just spring it on these guys without giving them a heads up because it would it would take an hour to cover. So having said that, I don't want to discourage you. I'm just trying to strategize. That's my plan. All right? 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. If you just joined me, I hope you had a great day. Climbing in your car, driving home, getting ready for the evening, a little dinner, hopefully time with loved ones. That's all good. We're enjoying Guide Talk, an extended version of Guide Talk. Um, and your questions are so welcome. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, what does it mean to deliver this man to Satan for destruction of the flesh so that he may be saved in the day of the Lord? 1 we, Corinthians 5.5. 5. So we were talking about this earlier in the show a little bit. Uh, later in verse 11, I think it was in, where it says, um, that have nothing to do with this sinful brother who's not turning from their sin. Um, verse 5 is about, it seems to be about a specific person in Corinth 
who's having a form of sexual immorality that, that Paul says not even the pagans have, if I remember the verse correctly. And uh, it's assumed that somebody has gone to them and instructed them and they haven't listened. And so as we were talking about earlier, hand them over to the world. Uh, put them out of your fellowship. Uh, this is, by the way, with any sin that a believer is refusing to repent from, from this sexual immorality, to put them out from your fellowship. Yeah, and, and one commentator puts it this way. He says, deliver this man to Satan probably refers to removing him from the church since those outside of the church are in Satan's realm. That's that's one way to answer it. But the other thing is when you give somebody over, when when the Bible talks about the flesh, especially as a Christian, it has to do with the habitual patterns that we bring into our relationship with Jesus Christ after we're saved, those thoughts and, and habits that uh, that we eradicate through the power of sanctification or allowing the Spirit of God to work on us incrementally. So the whole idea is, is that when you give them over to flesh, you're saying, in essence, I'm going to give you over to your past passions, to your past habits, and, uh, and you know, and, and the implication is uh, until you come to an end to yourself. Hmm. Very good. All right. What is the difference between prayer and supplication? Well, prayer can, can can be just communicating with God, just like we were talking sure. a few minutes ago. God, thank you for this day today. Thank you for giving me another day of life. Now, that's not supplication. Supplication is an aspect of prayer. But it's not all of what prayer is. Well, you know, praise is an aspect of prayer. You know, thanksgiving is an aspect of prayer. Uh, repentance is an aspect. Supplication is, you know, you're praying for, you're bringing somebody else before the Lord. Mm-hmm. Or you're, you're concerned about them and what they need. And it's very appropriate to do, and I encourage people to do it. Pray for others uh, as well as yourself. I was. This is one of my favorite verses, actually, where this word is, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that we, through prayer and petition or prayer and supplication, bring your requests yes, yep. to God. And, yeah, I think prayer is a more uh, generic term of communicating with God. You can pray many things. You can pray, pray prayer of thanksgiving, prayer of of, of uh, worship, uh, prayer. Uh, you could ask then for God for something. Uh, that, I think, is what supplication is all about, to ask for a need, uh, bring a request to God. And I think it's just prayer in general and supplication as in bringing a specific request to God. And you, he's even big enough to absorb your anger. Mm. So sometimes when you come <laughs> to him point. and you're frustrated and you're angry and you're voicing it to somebody who loves you, and understands you, uh, the very core of your being, he's big enough to absorb it. That could be an aspect as well. So I looked up the Greek word really quick, and that's petition, uh, a supplication is a need or a want or a penury, which I don't even know what that word means, penury. Don't look at me, Jeff. <laughs> penury. It comes from the word penitence. Uh, does it? It's, yeah, it's the same base as penitence, Perfect. and so it's, you know, confessing. One thing I would encourage on this, the text you you mentioned here, the Philippians 4, always read 4 through 7 together. Mm. 4 through 7, because there is a descending order on what we're called to do. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness, in verse 5, be known to everyone. Lord is saying, do not be anxious about anything. By prayer and supplication, present your request to God. And then, it doesn't have then in there, but you could say it. And then, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind. I've had people come out and say, where is the peace of God? That passes all understanding. And when I finally stumbled onto this verse as I was teaching, and I mean stumbled in the sense it made sense, then I say to people, how much rejoicing are you doing? 
How much supplication are you doing praying for others? How are you being reasonable in your approach with the Lord and others? Because those are the requirements to get what you want or to get this peace of God. And so I think it's so important it goes together. If you're not casting your cares to the Lord, you're probably not experiencing as much peace from the Lord as you can. All right, yesterday was an amazing day here at Faith Radio. We had a day of forgiveness, and it was transformational for many people. So I was very pleased about what God did in the lives of many people uh, yesterday. But I also heard this expression, too. I'm curious what you guys think of the expression, you need to let it go. And when I when I hear let it go, I, I sometimes think, okay, that's that's something you need to do. But what about proactively taking something and putting it somewhere. So instead of letting it go, you've done something proactive. I've placed something in a place and I've taken action versus I I just got to let it go. Rarely do do I see that work when I counsel people, just let it go because they don't know where to put it is what it really comes down to. Kind of what you're saying. So what I tell people is put it, you know, I, I mean, I'm not, trying to, to create a false image. But if you want to picture Jesus with his outstretched hand, put it in those hands or put it at his nail-scarred feet. Put it where Jesus can have it. And once he has it, you're not allowed to take it back. Yeah. And if I can get people to do that, in most cases then, they actually do find a way to start actually moving beyond that. Yeah, my counsel is a variation of that. I tell men all the time, to uh, lay it on the altar of God and walk away. Same thing. Give it to God and walk away. I like that. So it feels like you're... You're doing something with it. You're not yeah. just letting it go like it could come. Or it's going to hang out there like a cloud and still I'm, consume you. I'm wafting back, you know, but <laughs> yeah. I've placed it somewhere and it's where I put it. Yeah. So now it's in a good place. Yes. Yeah. Interesting day of uh, forgiveness, too. There was a lot of people saying, I've got to let go of, of some pain that is a result of sexual and abusive behavior as a kid. It sounds so traumatic, mm-hmm. not not even as a kid, but even as an adult, mm-hmm. and trying to let that go. Mm, a lot of people are really struggling. It's a horrible place to be. And I've seen, especially women. Now, there are men that go through this too, but it's, it's usually women, young women. They're abused by somebody, a, a father, an uncle, a brother, whoever it may be. And... I struggled for a long time with this. And even my friends who are psychologists say, I have no idea how to help this person really deal with this. This is so deep. What I did learn to do is oftentimes I would I would let I would ask that woman to bring another woman with her. And between the three of us then, we would lay hands on her head and say, These are the hands of Jesus now, cleansing you, giving you a new identity. He hates what happened, but by his shed blood, you're now a new person. And that has no longer any power, nor is there any shame. And the good news is, it seems to always make a difference for these women to where they get beyond that. And uh, I've seen that over and over and over. And so I try to do that to help them. But I do it. I make sure there's another woman there. When when you say, um, you know, let it go, it doesn't mean that you're condoning that behavior or that you're saying, okay, I can't feel the emotions that I've experienced because I suffered under this kind of abuse. 
It may be that you choose not to seek revenge, but it doesn't mean that you expose yourself again to the possibility of happening to you with that same person because, oh, I forgave them, mm-hmm. so I'm going to bring them home to dinner. No, you've got to set up boundaries. And so consequently, uh, it, it's not a matter of letting go as condoning or coming to an agreement or saying that, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. It was. It was terrible. And you're scarred for it. But you don't have to expose yourself again to it. You're just going to, again, lay it on the altar of God, and you may have to do that repeatedly. That's a good word. And know that those <clears throat> past events do not define who you are. That's right. Christ, you mentioned this, Tom, as well, that your new identity, your new creation, forgiven, cleansed, made perfect and holy and righteous and blameless in his eyes. That's who you are now. You're a child of the king. That's your new identity in Christ. And sometimes we see ourselves as a perpetual victim. And anybody that comes within our presence, we're constantly sharing our victimhood. When it's when Christ is saying, you're not a victim, you're a victor. Mm-hmm. Mm, I like, yeah. I met an older lady who was victimized as a child uh, by a relative, and he was still alive. She was also a hunter. I love hunting. She had a 30-30, and if you know anything about rifles, you have to cock the trigger before you pull, the, pull it. And I said, so how have you learned? How have you grown in the Lord? How have you found a way to not let this control you anymore? She said, well, it took me a long time to uncock the trigger toward the guy who did this to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I still have the gun, though. In case he comes back. <laughs> but she said, I am I am no longer going to punish him. That's up to the Lord. He's never repented, but it's up to the Lord. It's no longer up to me. And that left an impression on me. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. We're out of time. Oh, Unbelievable. No way. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Show's going to end, but you guys, I'd like you to sit here for another hour. <laughs> Uh, that would that would feel right. All right, that is uh, all the time we have for today. But I do have some other questions that have come in. This next one, I'm just chomping at the bit to ask, but I'm so sorry I can't do it. But we will pick it up next week at the same time for more God Talk because uh, there are some great questions still coming in. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio, and special thanks to. Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, and Greg Borgon is my power panel today. I hope you have a lovely night. I hope you enjoy uh, your evening. Sure is lovely out this time of year. I hope you um, have a good meal and some fellowship with people you love. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.